Good morning. Welcome to Randall again. Uh, If you'll find your way to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. If you've got the Bibles in front of you, there are a black Bible there in the pew in front of you. It's a new international version. We're on page 1086 is where we're going to be headed here uh, this morning. Uh, The last number of weeks we've been working our way through this sermon series. I'd have to tell you, I have been waiting to tell you uh, the story that goes with this particular message Uh, for a number of years, uh, 20 years in the making, actually, uh, what I'm about to share with you this morning. I was not born yet, but in 1966, uh, the Beach Boys sang a song maybe you've heard before, Sloop John B. Is everyone familiar with the song? Not everybody, but some of you. It goes, this is the worst trip I've ever been on. This is, and, and let me tell you, I'm about to tell you about the worst trip that I have ever been on. The year was 1998. Uh, I decided at that time my mother had, or we had a family horse. Her name was Zandy. It was our family horse growing up. I loved Zandy. You would all love her too if she was here with me this morning. And uh, Zandy was my horse all the way through my childhood and what it turned out to be was we realized she was getting older, and I realized, I looked around, I said, you know what, Uh, I'm going to be without a horse if we don't do something about this. My grandparents lived in Florida, and they had a horse farm there in Florida, and so I decided and asked my parents, and they got me permission, and my grandparents were were interested in this uh, idea that I had, was that I would take my horse from New York, take it to Florida, she was a female, uh, and then we would have her get pregnant there in Florida with one of the horses there on his farm. And then I would have a horse uh, for the future when I wanted to ride a horse. After my horse got old and died, then I would have a horse to ride. Does that sound logical to any of you? Yeah. So we, uh, we loaded up. Uh, I was a senior in high school. I got my girlfriend at the time, Erin. She was in college, and she rode along me. So I was 17. She was 18, and our chaperone was my 13-year-old sister. I uh, had to sit between us the whole trip. Uh, that was the way my parents allowed it to happen. And so uh, we, we started off, and uh, we had as our vehicle of choice, our farm vehicle of choice, was a, uh, an old delivery truck uh, that had about 330,000 miles on it, and it had been converted over to uh, a cattle truck by cutting a hole in the back of it and putting a ramp on it. And then I was able to get my horse into the vehicle, and we set off for southern states. Uh, This was over our Christmas break. So this was just before uh, Christmas, and then it was going to take us about a week to make the trip. Uh, Maybe it was just after Christmas. It was before New Year's as we made our way there. So on our way south, we traveled with another family that was also headed that way. As we were headed that way, we broke down in West Virginia. Maybe you're familiar with this if you've driven that trip at all. Uh, there's, in West Virginia, there's a seven-mile hill that comes down out of the mountains. It's after you've passed through a couple of tunnels. And I think it's Route 77. You made your way down through there. And you're coming down. As we're coming down the side of this mountain, uh, there's all of these escape ramps, you know, where if your vehicle uh, needs, got trouble, you can go up this escape ramp. Well, my vehicle had trouble. I started eyeing the escape ramp. I wasn't sure what was going to happen, but eventually we did come to a stop, and the water pump had gone on the vehicle. That was in West Virginia. And so what that means, we had to stay overnight there in West Virginia, and I had just uh, gotten my first credit card, and so I was able to use the credit card and, and, and spend all my money on my credit card to stay in a hotel that night, get the vehicle fixed, 
and then we headed on our way on to Florida. Somewhere in Florida, after delivering the horse to my grandparents there in Florida and spending a couple days with them, uh, the exhaust manifold came off of the vehicle there in Florida. And I called my dad and I asked him what to do about it and he said, I, I think you should just drive home. And so uh, we sounded like a stock car from Florida back to New York. Uh, that thing was just as loud as can be and you'd hear us coming. And so uh, we, we had a stop in Tennessee, uh, in Chattanooga, Tennessee. We were gonna stop there and uh, see my aunt and uncle who lived there. While we were there, there was an ice storm and so uh, that ice storm set us back about three days because we didn't want to leave in the middle of the ice storm. After the ice storm, we started making our way uh, the, the rest of the way home. And somewhere near Cincinnati, uh, Ohio, I pulled into a parking spot at McDonald's. Uh, my girlfriend said, Erin, uh, now my wife, said, don't park in this parking spot. It's the worst. And I said, I always find the best parking spots. And we came out of McDonald's. I had a flat tire on the vehicle because of the parking spot that I had found. It was the front tire. We couldn't get a replacement for the tire, so that meant we had to stay overnight. Uh, the back end of the, the vehicle, we had dualies on the back, and so they took a tire off of the back, put it on the front, and so now we only had three wheels on the back of our 330,000-mile vehicle, and we still had about you know, nine hours to go to get home. And so we started heading home from Cincinnati. Uh, we had to make up a lot of time. The snow was starting to ease off, but it was bitterly cold. Uh, the ice storm, we'd gotten past that, and we came in somewhere near Cleveland, Ohio, and I was passing a lot of vehicles because I was trying to make up time, passing cars, and one after another, one after another. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, my vehicle stopped running, and I wasn't sure why. I was watching the gauges, and so I pulled over to realize that now I had a transmission fire underneath the vehicle. And so there on the side of the road, we had snow that we were trying to throw on the transmission fire. And uh, it was so cold though that all, the snow was so hard, it was like throwing rocks at it, it just kind of hit it and fall off. We weren't, there was nothing it would do. And so um, eventually a snowplow pulled up behind us and he got out and he had a fire extinguisher in his vehicle and he put out the fire and told us that we had passed him approximately six miles previously on fire six miles previously. <laughs> but we were going so fast, you know, we couldn't do anything about it and he's just, he just waited until he caught up with us. So there on the side of the highway, we met a man named Lydell Wilson. Lydell Wilson, I remember his name because he had the same last name as us. He took us three foolish teenagers, crammed us into his truck, and he was getting off of work. And he took us off the highway and took us back to where the trucks uh, unloaded. And he put us in his car. And he took us home to his house. Uh, that night we stayed there and he got our vehicle towed off of the highway. And uh, to, the, to the point where the following morning uh, he had to go to work. And he let three teenagers stay in his house. Uh, after feeding us supper, uh, he went and worked a 12-hour shift while we waited for our vehicle to get fixed. Turns out after you've had a transmission fire, vehicles don't get fixed very quickly. And so our parents had to come to Cincinnati or to Cleveland and pick us up and rescue us from the worst trip ever. And then my dad and I had to drive back a week later and get what was left of the vehicle and bring it back to New York State. That's my story of the worst trip ever. I want to tell you that story. Because that man, Lydell Wilson, uh, I called him a few weeks later, and he ended up coming 
uh, driving him and his buddies on their motorcycles, drove up uh, to my graduation from high school, graduation party, and he was at the graduation party, and we got pictures of him uh, throwing a baseball, and I'm sitting on the dunk tank and stuff like that. Just a good memory with this perfect stranger, Lydell Wilson. Today we're going to be talking about the parable of the Good Samaritan. And for many of you, you have stories, maybe not quite as odd or unusual or all the circumstances that kind of happened with that worst trip, but a story of a Good Samaritan. In fact, there's actually a top 10 list every year of Good Samaritan stories. This one was from last year. This is Bao Zashuan, is listed by Guinness Book of World Records as the tallest man in the world. He is 7 feet 8.95 inches. His arm extends 1.06 meters. So in 2006, the Mongolian herdsman got the call from the Chinese vets that his wingspan was urgently needed in the Funchuan Aquarium. And if I'm messing these up, I apologize. The doctors had repeatedly failed to remove painful plastic shards that two dolphins had swallowed, and the animals were slowly starving. So all the surgical instruments had failed to remove the fragments. Mr. Bao immediately traveled to the aquarium. The workers pried open the animals' jaws, held them open with towels so that he wouldn't be bitten. And with cameras rolling, scores of onlookers watching, Bao reached into the animals' stomachs and removed as many shards as he could find just by reaching his arm in there, pulled them out. And the fragments he couldn't reach were safely digested. The dolphins made a full recovery. Bao accepts, as this article says, Bao accepted a few pats on his lower back and then return back to the fields. A good Samaritan. As we dig into one of the greatest stories in Scripture, we need to understand that these good Samaritan stories, it is, it is more than just helping someone who is stranded, as Mr. Lydell did with us that day. There's more there than helping a stranded dolphin uh, that can't be healed. There's a lot more going on here than that. So we want to talk a little bit and hopefully this series will help you see the backstory, the context of where this comes from. If you're joining us this week, we are beginning or we're three weeks into a series called Journey to Jerusalem. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, we see Jesus say, I must go to Jerusalem. And he sets his face, he steals his face towards Jerusalem. He had a responsibility that he was going to go to Jerusalem no matter what. And as he focuses on Jerusalem, he is an all-knowing, all-powerful God, knows that when he gets to Jerusalem, what is waiting for him there is a week of torture, of lies, of, of people putting him on trial for something he's never done, and then he would be crucified for the sins of you and me, the sins of the whole world. That's what he had waiting for him there. In Luke chapter 19, verse 28, Jesus will arrive in Jerusalem. That distance should be about a three days journey. But what we have is actually a three-month journey that he takes very specifically moving his way through and making certain he's able to communicate some things. It's always important to pay attention to what someone's last words are. If they are able to, someone will think through very carefully what are the last words, what's the last thing that they want to communicate. And in this three months, Jesus is very, very intentional about how he spends his time with his disciples. He's very intentional about the conversations that he has. And it's no surprise that in the middle of this uh, journey, we find the story, the parable of the Good Samaritan. So if you're there, Luke chapter 10, uh, 25 is where we'll start today. If you've got your Bible's open, and if you have that uh, white sheet of paper that came in your bulletin this morning, 
the filling to begin us this morning is called the right question. Luke chapter 10, verse 25, your filling is the right question. Verse 25, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, there's a few things we're going to say about this lawyer, this teacher, this expert in the law. But first, we have to say he's asking the right question. It's easily the most important question that any person on this planet in his time or in our time today, this is the right question. It is more important than the question of what is the job that I will do. Some of you are college students trying to make the decision of how will you spend the rest of your life? What will be the job? What will be my profession? I'll need to change my major and, and focus on those things. These are big decisions, but it is more important than the decision of what will be my profession. It is more important than the decision, who will I marry? Who will I spend the rest of my life with? Who will I have kids with? It is more important than the question of whether your kids go to public school or private school. It is more important than the question of where you will worship. It is more important than the question of who you will watch the Super Bowl with. This is the most important question. It is the right question. Some of you know Andrew and Kaylee Strozik. They're friends of ours. They grew up here in the church, and uh, they're part of our church plant out in North Tonawanda. Uh, if you happen to be watching Facebook this week, they posted a video of their little girl doing one of the funniest things that I've seen. You can look it up after this if you'd like. Uh, their daughter is talking to Alexa. So Alexa is sitting on the countertop. Alexa is Amazon's program, their computer that you can talk to. And so there's music playing and she talks to, and she says this, I think I've written it down. She says, uh, Alexa, she's trying to get Alexa to play Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, but this is what she says. By the wiggles, twinkle, twinkle, play the music. Is what she tells Alexa. Here's Alexa's response. How do you make a handkerchief dance? <laughs> she said, maybe you missed, by the wiggles, twinkle, twinkle, play the music. Alexa responds, how do you make a handkerchief dance? You put a little boogie in it. That's her conversation with Alexa. All she wanted was to dance to the wiggles and twinkle, twinkle, and now she's got this, you know, discussion going on in her mind. Jim Wallace is an author that I like to read. He says this, if you are asking the wrong question, it doesn't matter how good the answer is, you aren't going to get where you want to go. If you are asking the wrong question, it doesn't matter how good the answer is, you are not going to get where you want to go. This question, this one question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, is the right question. And in our culture and in their culture in that day as well, they're asking so many other questions about our lives, so many other questions about how to live our lives, and so many other questions about what uh, end times might look like. And first, we have to come down and say, are you asking the right question? Because the answers to the wrong questions will never get you where you want to go. So first, we're asking the right question. Secondly, in verse 26, let's talk about the bright pupil. Let's talk about the bright pupil. Verse 26 says this, what is written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. Verse 29, but he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who 
is my neighbor. Now, if you are working through, if you're more of a visual person, you need this, that the first question of the right question, just draw a question mark, just a picture off to the side, just draw a question mark. And if you want to draw one next to the bright pupil, just draw a picture of a light bulb. This guy is, is pretty sharp. When Jesus responds to him, so he's an expert in the law, and when Jesus responds to him, Jesus says, you have answered correctly. He says, how do you read it? And he immediately knows what the, the correct answer to the law is. This is the Shema, which is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is the addition that Jesus adds to it. So first, we need to make sure that we understand that he is sharp. He knows exactly what he is talking about. He knows exactly the question he has asked Jesus. And because of that, and if any of you are lawyers, that's fine. I'm not trying to come after you at all. The, the, the reality is with any time that there is a law, any time that there is something written down, there are people who do their very best to find little loopholes. And so what he thinks he has found is a loophole in the law. So his response is, I found a loophole where I don't actually have to respond. He says, here's the loophole that I found. And who is my neighbor? And we know that's his heart because 29 says he wanted to justify himself. So first of all, he is trying to test Jesus, it said in the first one. And now his second question in wanting to justify himself, trying to find the loophole, he says, and who is our neighbor? And then Jesus responds with what we know as the parable of the Good Samaritan. We cannot miss, as we start to go into this parable, you cannot miss how important it is that Jesus uses the Samaritan as the hero of the story. You got to see the context of this lawyer who is, he knows the law and knows it well. He has found this loophole, he thinks. He has found a way to get around actually responding the way that he should in a wholesome manner, responding to what God has done by telling us that we need to love the Lord God all your heart, all your soul, and your mind. He's found this loophole. He said, but who's my neighbor? And so we cannot miss that when we move on to the next one. Thirdly, the unexpected response. If you want to use this picture method, draw yourself a picture of a word bubble. This is Jesus' response. And in that word bubble, draw yourself a picture of a Band-Aid. Because this is what a lot of times we think of when it comes to the Good Samaritan. The unexpected response. Verse 30, in reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and he saw the man. He passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, he came to the place he saw him and passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him. He bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. So this man is traveling from, let's say, Jerusalem to Jericho. This road had a reputation of being where thieves and robbers were at. So when Jesus is telling this parable, the people in the area would know, oh, that's a bad part of town. So he is traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. On the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, there's probably stories regularly of someone uh, who is uh, attacked by robbers on this road. It's a dangerous road for people to travel. So as he is traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, it says that robbers come in and they beat him up and leave him there half dead. And so then someone following along 
is coming along, we see first the priest, then we see the Levite, and then we see the Samaritan come along, and they see this man who is now wounded, laying half dead on the side of the road. Now the priest, the priest would say, I cannot interact with this body because I have to go and do worship services. And, and, and in their context, if he touches a body or if he does anything that is unclean, it's going to keep him from being able to do his job. The Levite would also be within the family of priests. Maybe he's not the priest himself, but the Levites would be within the family. And they also had responsibilities for within the temple, within the area. And then thirdly, you have this Samaritan. The Samaritan who would be hated by all of the people there listening. To give you a context too, in modern culture, this, this debate between the Samaritans and the Jews is still very, very real. It starts with King Solomon in the Old Testament. That is David's son. King Solomon becomes king. And then after he dies, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom really break away one from another. And the northern kingdom is where Samaria is located. And that became uh, the, the capital city, if you will, of the northern kingdom. And so Samaria became known as the Samaritans. They were a despised people by the Jews. And then there's a number of different times that they interact with each other in a negative manner. But both of these groups of people see themselves as part of Abraham's many generations and many who would be followers after God's own heart. So they fight constantly with one another. They still are fighting constantly with one another. One of the statistics I read in 2015, it was noted that the Samaritans and the Jews are still fighting with one another, even though currently, well, 2015, there were only 770 Samaritans on this planet. And still, the Jews and the Samaritans fight with one another as to who is God's chosen people, where is God's chosen place of worship. If you remember that in John chapter 4, when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, what does she bring up? The same argument that they had been debating for years and years and years and years. So Jesus tells this story of the man on a trip from Jerusalem to Jericho. He is beaten up. He is laying on the side of the road. He is in pain. He is suffering. And those who had the religious loophole as to why they did not have to interact with him, first the priest steps around him and moves on towards Jericho. Secondly, the Levite comes and he steps around him and moves on his way to Jericho. Why? Because he did not have to, by the letter of the law, it would keep him from being able to do his work worship practices, he was not in responsibility per se that he would have to interact with this man. But the third one, the Samaritan, was the one who responded. The Samaritan did more than he needed to do. You see, when this story happens, the context of the story, when Jesus is talking to this ruler, when Jesus is talking to this educated man who is trying to trap him, when Jesus talks with him and he gives the Shema, he gives an explanation of love under God. The banner over me is love. Everyone, we're supposed to love God and love others. And so in that response, he's saying this is all under this big banner. But when the man says, who is my neighbor, he is trying to undermine love. He is trying to find a loophole where this big banner is no longer applicable to me. I've found this loophole. I've found a way that I do not have to interact with this man. But the actions of the Samaritan in Jesus' parable demonstrates love in action. 
love in action. So first, there's the love that we are all under God. Secondly, we have this who is my neighbor is trying to undermine love. And Jesus responds and tells the story of the Samaritan that is love undertaken. So you've heard the story before, or you've heard some version of the story before, and it's a beautiful story. This is a parable. This is Jesus telling a story. This is not a historical document or anything where this actually happened. No, he's using a very specific example to tell a story. A parable is often known as an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. But what's the heart of the matter? If we don't get caught in the story itself, what is, fourthly, the heart of the matter? Luke chapter 10, verse 36. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell on the hands of the robber? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Do you remember at the beginning when he asked, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responded, verse 28, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. In verse 37, he says, go and do likewise. He already knows what to do, and yet he is trying to find a loophole and a way out of it. Which of these three do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law, he looks at the story. The expert in the law is looking at what he has seen played out in front of him. He sees the priest, he sees the Levite, and he sees the Samaritan. And as he's looking at the story, don't miss the fact that he cannot even name him the Samaritan. When he looks at the three characters in the story, he cannot even say the Samaritan is the one who demonstrates the love of God. What does he say? Verse 36, what does he say? Verse 37, excuse me. The expert in law replied, the one. The one who had mercy on him. That's as far as he can go. He can't go any further than that. The one who had mercy on him, Jesus told him, then you go and do likewise. He says, by the, by the story that you've told, there's only one answer that I can give. I don't like it. Jesus said, that's all right. Go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. So if we're going to get to the heart of the matter, if we're going to get to the heart of the matter, and you can draw a heart there next to that if you want. You can turn your sheet of paper over. I want to move through these very quickly. And you give you a response of what really is the heart of the matter. What is the take home for you and for me today? If you're looking at this passage, it's familiar to you. What's the takeaway? First is this, choose obedience over comfort. Choose obedience over comfort. When Jesus turns this story back and hands it back to the expert in the law, he says, what choice will you make? You have these three characters in this story. Which one most demonstrates the love of God? Which one of them is the neighbor? And all he can say is the one. So he had to make a choice. So you have a choice to make today, to choose obedience over comfort. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Choose obedience over comfort. It is not easy for us to stop on the side of the highway and help someone who is, maybe their transmission is on fire. <laughs> it is not easy for these guys to stop on their way to worship and gather together. If you were late this morning because you were helping someone, that's the very little response of take the Good Samaritan story, be a Good Samaritan. That's a very little response. But the bigger response is, are you going to choose obedience, what God's word says, over your own comfort? 
Because each one of us protects the bottom line, protects our own comfort. And here it says, choose obedience over comfort. Secondly, choose full living over half-dead living. Choose full living over half-dead living. Let me change the story for you for just a second. We don't actually know from this passage whether this was a Gentile or a Jew or a Samaritan. We don't know what the ethnicity was of this particular man who was laying on the side of the road. But when a Samaritan is the one who comes and offers him help, offers to pick him up and take him to the inn and take care of his wounds and bandage him up and pay for a hotel stay, put him on his donkey, he could choose half-dead living. Since he's laying there half dead, he could choose to stay in that state rather than reconcile or, or work out this relationship with a Samaritan man. We, we, we choose half dead living so many times in our lives, don't you know that? That we choose, you know what, I know that I'm in living in sin. I know that this relationship is wrong. I know that if I keep going back to the source of my problems, I will continue to continue to continue to have these issues and yet I'm going to choose half-dead living rather than what God wants for us, full living. I'm going to choose to stay here because I don't want to reconcile that relationship. I'm going to choose to stay here because I don't want to forgive. I'm going to choose to continue to work at this job because I'm afraid to step out. I'm going to choose half-dead living over full living. Thirdly, choosing grace over confrontation. Choose grace over confrontation. How many times a day in our lives do we have an opportunity to confront an issue where we feel as we were wronged in some way, some form, some fashion? This expert in the law felt that he had now found a way to justify his position that he could confront, he could step aside, he could, he could deal with things however he wants. And God is telling him, Jesus is telling him, why don't you choose grace over confrontation? Why don't you choose grace over confrontation with that interaction with that coworker? Why don't you choose grace over confrontation when it comes to how you parent your children? Why don't you choose grace over confrontation in that dispute between you and your wife, you and your husband? Choose grace over confrontation. And then lastly, choose sacrifice over self. Choose sacrifice over self. If you look at this story, you see three characters. A choice has been made here of which, which character most demonstrates the love of God, which character demonstrates mostly what it means to be a good neighbor. The one who has chose sacrifice over self. The Christian life is about sacrifice. Living the Christian life is about giving yourself away. Sacrifice over self. You don't believe me? Just tell your friends. Tell your friends what you are doing and see if they respond to you in the way that you expect. Tell your friends that you are giving one week of your vacation away this year because you decided you're going to go with the youth on their summer missions trip. Tell them that of your three weeks or your two weeks or your six weeks of vacation that you have, that you're going to give one of them away. You're going to use your vacation days for the purpose of going on a mission trip. You're going to use your vacation days to come and work a week of VBS. You're going to use your hard work vacation days not to go and sit at the beach, but because you're going to go and work hard and dig a trench somewhere. Tell them that that's what you're going to do. 
Tell your friends that you are volunteering here at the church or volunteering in some way five hours, six hours, 10 hours a week and serving with CSB or serving uh, with the kids downstairs or serving as an elder of the church. Tell them that that's what you're doing and you'll understand what the difference between sacrifice and self is. Tell your friends that you're giving up a few nights a month, maybe a, a night every single week for the group that meets together in your home. Tell them that you've given that up, that you wanna make sure that that's put as a priority, that you wanna make sure that you have that. Tell them that you've taken your Friday nights and you're not gonna allow your kids to do anything because you wanna keep that night for family because you want to raise your kids to know and understand that family is important and the first thing for family to be united together is that they understand the love of God. Tell your friends that you're doing that. Tell your friends that you're taking your gross salary and you're giving 10% back to what God is doing here at the local church. Tell them that, no, I haven't found any loopholes or found any way to get out of that, but I'm going to give in that way because God has given me so much, I'm going to give that much back. Tell them that you're going to sacrifice in that way and tell them that you will no longer be living for yourself in a different manner. That's the backstory of the Good Samaritan. As I've given some of those examples, some of you are looking back at me and saying, I, but I'm not doing those things. I'm not doing any of those things, or maybe I'm doing one of those things. Much like the Good Samaritan story, much like the expert of the law, looking at this parable, he had a choice to make. And as the band comes this morning, we're going to play a song here to finish out. It's all about making a choice today. It's all about making a choice, choosing obedience over comfort, choosing full living over half-dead living, choosing grace over confrontation, choosing sacrifice over self. You have a choice before you this morning. And you may be familiar with this passage because it was something that you learned in Sunday school long ago. You may be familiar with this passage even though you've never been part of the church. But you've got a choice to make today. How will you respond? Jesus says, which of these three was a neighbor to the man? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. We take our offering at this time of service. We do that very intentionally. This year we've made an adjustment there. There's a white connection card in the pew in front of you. If there's some way that you are going to make a choice this week, would you please, so that we can pray for you, so we can interact with you, maybe so we can start a dialogue with you, will you write down on that sheet of paper what that choice is? I'm going to make a choice this week, a choice for obedience, a choice for full living, a choice for grace, a choice for sacrifice. The choice is there before you. Will you respond in that way? Ushers, as you'll come forward this morning, do what I pray for the offering. As people are giving their tithes and offerings to you, that is a choice as well, Lord. A choice to give what you've already given to us. Lord, we've made choices here as a church. Choices for missionaries that we will support. Choices for ministries that we will have here on campus and those that we won't. Lord, let us be a church who has chose obedience over comfort. Lord, let us, let us be at the heart of the matter, Lord, that our heart beats for all of our neighbors, those who are close and those who are far away. Let us be a church who demonstrates really what the heart of being the Good Samaritan really is. 
Lord, we trust that you will use that. We trust that a week from now that the church would look differently. And we trust that a month from now, if we really lived out these choices, that the church would significantly be growing and the church would significantly be healthier than it is right now. We, we trust that, Lord, if this church was that significantly healthy, that, Lord, the community would be affected by that, all because of a choice to take the parable of the Good Samaritan and take it out of Take it out of our minds as this cute little story and get to the heart of the matter. For there are many here that need to make a choice this morning. Lord, give them the boldness to do so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.